This show is a proud member of the Nerdy Legion Podcast Network. Get more at nerdylegion.com. Enjoy the show! This is episode 132 of VCP. With me this week is Jay Loving, my cohort on uh, Comics in Black and White, and my other cohort on Comics in Black and White, Dennis Chandler. Both of you have joined me separately on Comics in Black and White. At some point, we got to get us all three together on that uh, podcast, too. Although we don't too often, too often do two people on a podcast, but we're working on a, uh, we're working on Elf Quest. That one's probably going to get more than two people because uh, uh, Martin still says he wants to do it. If you ever finished, read the damn book, have you finished reading the Omni I sent you? Um, I've received book. it. Yeah, no, that's going to take. I I've been very bad about reading lately. Actually, Jay and I are going to record uh, an episode of Comics in Black and White on Black Magic, the Greg Rucka image book. Uh, and I haven't read that yet, so I, I mean, it's just the first trades. So I gotta read like, what, four or five issues? Five, five and then, five. it's Greg Rucka. It'll fly by. Greg Rucka's great. And then next week, Dennis, you and I are gonna set up a time to record on, uh, Tyrant, which is a comic you'll be able to tell more about because I haven't read it yet, but, uh, it's a, a comic about, uh, about dinosaurs. What, what, what else is there to that story? Well, I think this is the first one we're going to do. It's a failed comic book. So we keep talking about the ones, you know, that went on for years and years and our successes and everything. Well, this is a failed one. And the premise was this creator was going to write an entire comic series chronicling the birth, life, and death of a single Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. This is definitely something a little different in a lot of different ways. And you can't go wrong with dinosaurs uh, unless you're dynamite. Then you could find a way to screw up dinosaurs. <laughs> Chirac. But yeah, so back to what we were talking about. So Valiant, VH1, man, we got a lot of stuff that we've all been talking about. Uh, Jay here had never gotten any of the VH1 old school Valiant, classic Valiant stuff, as, uh, as Sean would say. Uh, and Dennis sent me a whole big bunch of stuff. That he got in a, a bigger deal that he didn't need, and uh, you you sent it to me right in the realm of time where I decided I did not want to collect it. I was still on the fence about it, and I said, "Nope, not gonna do this." And then I got this. Well, I got four boxes of books from you. It was insane, and so I took it and I sent it on to somebody who I knew could use it, which was Jay, and that was Jay's uh, first VH1 books in your collection, Jay. I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's like I had, you know, something I was thinking about doing someday is starting to collect VH1, but I didn't have any real plans. I just mentioned it, uh, you know, I think I sent the Slack channel and then on Facebook, and now everybody's starting to send me stuff. You sent me that, and then Dennis sent me some more. Uh, I got some things from Sparkman, and now I'm waiting on this big uh, truckload that you just got this past week. Stuff. Yeah, I actually, I did I tell you about this at all, Dennis? I got about 200 classic valiant books for my comic shop because he was just trying to get rid of them by this point i got them for for very cheap i didn't want any of them but i knew that that somebody would so i talked to uh jay's getting a, a chunk of it sparkman's getting a chunk of it uh dewan's getting a chunk of it and uh a guy up in canada who's in our the valiant central facebook group and listens to the podcast uh He's getting uh, a very small chunk of it because it is expensive to ship stuff to Canada. Uh, so Alex, yeah, I, I literally, I figured out how many books I could send him for one cost and how many books for like the next cost up. 
I got this package so effing close to three pounds exactly without going over. So it wouldn't cost another 10 bucks if I just barely drifted over. I was literally cutting out parts of the cardboard flaps inside the box. So I would have enough weight left to tape the damn thing up. I, I got, I got everything I could in this box. God. But, uh, yeah, up in Canada, they don't have quite so easy of a time, but it still works out to be a, a pretty decent deal for him. Uh, like you said, it, it, it comes out with shipping to like a couple bucks a book, basically, which is about what you run into up there, I guess, for each book. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I was just glad to be able to help out other Valiant fans and it was just too good of a deal. I mean, I knew that my LCS wanted to liquidate these because they had gone from being individually priced to being in a dollar bin, uh, to being in, uh, uh, less than a dollar bin. And then I made him a deal to get the whole batch. I just said, you want to get rid of these? Give me a price. I'll take them all. Uh, so that way I could get the cost down low enough that I wouldn't have to worry about ending up uh, losing money on the deal myself because uh, I shouldn't have even spent the money on that. But it worked out because I got all my money back. So, uh, And, God, Jay, I think I got you over 60 books coming your way. And uh, same with Sparkman and Dewan. They, they're both getting around that amount. But well, How many books are in a VH1 collection? But not, over, not gold, not VVSS, just pure straight Yeah, up. not including that stuff, going through the end. Now, Acclaim owns Valiant oh. by the end of this, but the, the delineation between VH1 and VH2, Acclaim actually owned them during the end of the VH1 run, but yeah. the, it hadn't like been killed and relaunched yet. So that whole entire VH1 run, it's, it, it's like 660 books. Okay. Yeah, like uh let's see, XO sixty seven, uh Magnus sixty five. I think yeah, when those ended. Which ended up being low mm-hmm. print runs and some of those books there at the end are actually harder to find and a little bit more valuable than than some of some pre Unity issues. Yeah, the last issue of XO, Magnus, Eternal Warrior, Bloodshot. And then Bloodshot, there's also this Last Stand one-shot that, that's a pricier book. I think those are all, all the ones that are decently pricey. I mean, they're not, you know, huge costs, but you're probably looking at it unless you watch for a deal, which you can certainly find a deal if you're watching. Uh, you know, around like 20 or $30 books, you know, maybe a little more, a little less, give or take. Um, and then some other ones, like the last issue of Shadow Man um, is a little bit less than that. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as first issues go, uh, you have XO number one is probably about a $30 book. Magnus, the, the first four issues and then five through eight are the flip books with, uh, with Rye. And then you have cards in all eight of those, if I'm remembering correctly. Yes. Yeah. So if you have the cards intact, those are more valuable, of course. Um, Harbinger number one. Um, and then you have the cards in how many issues of Harbinger? Is it the first five issues? This is the first four or five for the send away. I'm yeah. And then if you get the send away, uh, Harbinger zero, the, the pink one, that's a valuable one. Then they actually did a, a reissue of it. That's a, the blue cover that is not very valuable at all. Yeah. I can find uh, the blue cover all day. I'm still looking for my pink. Because I didn't get yeah. the Valiant, Valiant until after that, so I missed out on that boat. But I didn't I didn't miss out on Cut to Coupons Out version 2.0 by the cutoff date of, what, May of this year? For Harbinger Wars 2? Zero? Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I got which I'm st- I'm still surprised why that upset people. It's like it's a coupon. Cut it out, send it in. You know, it's nostalgic. Maybe maybe I like the nostalgia of it, but that whole, you know, eh, grow up. It's just a comic. Cut well, it. I'm... Okay, I didn't realize that people. I missed, must have missed that. I didn't realize it was upset over that. Yeah, people people have literally been upset about every freaking promotion that Valiant has done. That isn't just you. Just, just go buy the book. Unless you just can go buy everything without any hassle, people complain about it. So, so yeah, they, the, the Legend of the Geomancer one, whatever. That's that's older news. Yeah, and then when they did this, uh, the coupon one, people are complaining about it. Well, I gotta buy two issues so I can keep one intact. Why the <sighs> hell do you have to do that? It's a coupon that was stapled in the middle of the book. You can remove it without damaging the book. Uh, if you think it's going to be as valuable as those old school Harbinger issues were or something, okay, well, th- you're making a decision to invest in this book being valuable in, you know, what, decades from now? So do it. I mean, you're making a $4 investment. Do it and shut up. Or cut out the coupon and, you know, realize that books are different nowadays and, like, there is not going to be the scarcity and that these books with coupon intact, well, that's I can't see them being really valuable nowadays. I mean, I'm, I'm not that big of a collector, but I, I just can't see stuff being published today being as valuable in 30 years as, you know, some of the older stuff was. I, I mean, it's just, it's just based on numbers of things that are in volume being published. Well, you well, you th- well you think that, but you know I thought the same thing in the early '90s, but now I'm seeing Amazing Spider-Man 300, first appearance, full appearance of Venom. You know, you get in a good condition book, two or three thousand um, dollars. Batman Adventures 12, first appearance of Harley Quinn. Didn't think about nothing at then. It's a thousand fifteen hundred dollar book. So, yeah, it's not going to be worth anything in five years or so, but in thirty years, I think there's a possibility. There, there's always a possibility. Exactly, yeah, but it's, it's a drop in the bucket kind of thing where, you know, how many characters are introduced, and most of them are never going to have that kind of impact, but you get the right character, and, I mean, the print runs of the books you just mentioned, like, those were probably pretty decent-sized print runs at the time, right? Because, I mean, they just printed books out the ass back then. Uh, so Spider-Man 300 particularly, I mean, Spider-Man's a popular title. There had to have been a ton of those printed. But how many people thought it was going to be worth anything? Even at the day, they may have, it's the 90s, everything is worth something, you know. But eventually they all said, no, my collection is not going to make me rich. And they, you know, got a little more careless with it. Uh, so at this point, it's hard to find them in really good condition. For a book that's the first Venom, how many other characters were introduced, you know, similar to what Venom was, where it's crazy and outlandish and exciting and whatever, but now you look back and you're like, that's stupid, I don't care about that. But you get the the one with Venom, and that's pretty awesome. Harley Quinn's, I mean, God, Harley Quinn has gotten insanely popular. Yeah, who would have predicted that? I mean, I, I did, you didn't get a Batman Adventures at the time. That was a kiddies book. It was based on the, t- on the cartoon. Nobody got that. And I've heard some speculation that, yeah, that, uh, ASM 300, Maybe it wasn't quite the million print run, but that was back in the day when you had six hundred, seven hundred thousand, you know, print run. I mean, it was only a few years later that you had what X Men One by Jim Lee with uh, Claremont White writing that, and that still holds the record of like um, 
God, I can't even think of what the print run on that was, but it was like 1.7 million or something. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like the prints nowadays are nowhere near that. Even the top books from DC and Marvel are no, nowhere no near that. But ASM 300s, you know, it's in a high condition book. It's a two or $3,000 book. And they may have printed four or 500,000 of them, which is nowhere near the print run of what you're seeing today. So. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's where right. the condition comes in. How how much uh how much is that book uh worth it just like a, a kind of reader copy condition? So somebody has it, it's been kinda of beat up up a little bit. Is does it still have much value to it or is it like high value or nothing with that book? So Amazing Spider Man three hundred, like a a four point beat up four point is like hundred and ten dollars last two sales on eBay. Yeah, so the book has decent value top to bottom then. Yeah, like a 9.8, let me see if I back it off, you know, 9.8, which this is a news, back in the days, a newsprint before all this nice fancy paper. The last sale was like for 9.8 three days ago was $2,300. Cow. Nice. And before that, yes. nine days was 2500 so, and it, you know, and maybe, you know, and I've kind of asked this, this question of some of the collecting valiant guys, uh, it's like, you know, for stuff like that, what drives the price? I mean, so there's a movie on Venom coming out, and you got uh, Tom Hardy's going to play Venom. So do you have all these people that never buy comics all of a sudden, hey, there's going to be a movie. I need to go buy this comic. Well, yeah, I don't think it's I, – I don't – that's kind of a good point with uh, movie speculation on comics. Like, it drives the value up, but – the reason it drives the value up is because people assume it's going to drive the value up. That's kind of what it seems like when you put it that way. Because people who are going to see a movie, they don't give a, they're not going to go out and spend $2,000 on a comic book with Venom because they're making a movie about Venom. But all the collectors go like, oh, there's a movie coming out. That means the value is going to go up. And then people spend more money on it. And do you think that kind of drives some of the, like, the, you know, the, the announcement that Valiant makes about, oh, we have a director? Oh, we somebody's writing the script. Somebody's looking at the script. You, you mean like do you do I think that drives Valiant doing that? Yeah, makes it. More I don't desirable. think they're doing it for speculation uh, means because the speculation on the old books doesn't mean shit to them. They they don't make anything off of the old books. Um, looking at it, so I I haven't been seeking out these books since then, but I I kind of get the drift of the price now and then. I fortunately decided to start collecting VH1 before the movie news happened. Um, it was like I had pretty much put my collection almost fully together by the time the movie news hit, so I got all the big books before. Um, it was just all coincidence. I just like I was loving reading Valiant. I had read literally everything that had come out in the VEI era, and it wasn't you know it wasn't coming out fast enough to sate me. I mean, when only I think at that time like seven books were coming out a month. And, uh, you know, well, that's, that's great, but I would fly through them and I didn't really, I was at a stage in my comic reading that pretty much all I wanted was Valiant. There was like a couple other things I got regularly, but like I had gotten a little fried on the, you know, trying to read Marvel and DC and whatever. And I just wanted Valiant. I wanted what I loved and I wanted more of it. Uh, and the comic shop I was going to back then had a quarter bin and man, I must've got a couple hundred VH1 books out of that bin. And, uh, I just decided I wanted to build a whole collection and I want to start reading it from the first issue published. So that all fuel, fueled it. 
and I got a lot of stuff for a lot cheaper than uh, it would end up being worth. The movie news hit, and uh, Bloodshot, I think 6 and 7, which was the first Colin King and the first Ninjack, those suddenly are books that are supposed to be valuable, and uh, what other ones went crazy? Uh, Eternal Warrior number 4 is the first Bloodshot. That's the one that actually makes sense going up in value, because they announced a Bloodshot movie, so it makes sense for the first Bloodshot appearance to go up. Plus, that's an awesome cover. Uh, Bloodshot 6 and 7, I'm still like, I don't get why anybody thinks these are valuable. Like, people go crazy about them, and I'm like, I've seen so many of these around. I had, I've had so many go through my hands, and I just don't care about those two books. I don't think there's really anything that special about those two, personally. But, you know, when a, when a Ninjak movie comes out, then uh, maybe that'll be a little bit different. Yeah, it just everything went crazy, and but then it all died back down. So you had all these people, you know, frothing at the mouth to, you know, spending big sums of money on some of these books, and uh, it just all settled back down. And that's what we were talking about on the podcast, just telling everybody, you know, if you want to collect this stuff, like, wait, wait it out, wait till the price comes down, because there's no way it's staying up like it was. Well, so what are your thoughts, Jay? Well, I'm again, I you know, I've not been much on. I, the things I collect, I collect because I want them, not because I don't do much speculation. Because that's it's always been. It's just not anything that's been all that much of a motivator for me. Cause, number one, because I, I don't think there's going to be anything I'm ever going to find that I can afford that's really going to be worth anything later. I mean, I've got, in my whole collection, I've got two books, two that I know of, that are worth more than a hundred bucks. And that's it. The rest of them are, you know, if I'm... They're even worth cover price still. I feel like I'm lucky on those. So. What two uh, books do you have? Are they Love and Rocket books? No. Uh, one of them is... Uh, you talk about books that you never expect to go up on anything. Uh, one of them is Detective Comics 880, which is a totally unremarkable book. It didn't introduce any character, nothing new. It just... It was... Um, in the last arc of Detective Comics, is actually Scott Snyder wrote it, and he had a cover. The cover on this thing was done by Jock, the artist Jock, and it's a uh, it's an image of the Joker. But it's if you look at it closely, the whole image, is, the whole face of Joker is made up of small bats, you know, just, that are all kind of in a composite to make up the Joker. And that cover became so damn popular, and that book's worth you know, say about 150 or 180, depending on where you see it. Wow. Isn't that the last detective before um, no. the new 52? No, there was one more. 881 was actually the last issue. This is the next to okay. last. And it's really, for everything I read, it's strictly because of the cover. Um, you know, people just, and low print run, probably. Yeah. And, and, yeah, the low print run, but everybody just fell in love with that cover because it was giant. And it is a nice cover. It's one of the more unique ones. But it's like just, well, yeah. I think, uh, hey, Paul, you and I were talking earlier this evening about like a book that value is derived completely from its cover. I think it was yeah. that Incredible Hulk 340. Yeah, Hulk 340, where uh, it's, uh, I believe it, oh, God, I was just looking at this. It's the first, uh, what the hell is it? It's Seth MacFarlane art, right? Yeah, uh, uh, Todd MacFarlane. Todd McFarlane, yeah, not Seth. That's the the one with Wolverine, and you see the Hulk's reflection in his claws. And I guess it's the second big Hulk Wolverine fight, but it's just a classic cover, and you see it, and you see a lot of covers nowadays. 
doing an homage to it and everything, but it's that's that's the only thing going for that book is the cover. Just everybody loves the freaking cover. Yeah. yeah, and that's I mean you you you've been my uh, my X Men Sherpa since I've been starting to get into this uncanny collecting, um, and like you pointed out, uh, the stuff that I got really quick and easily, the holes were some keys, but it was mostly other than the keys, it was mostly Wolverine covers because people dig Wolverine covers. You know, if you're gonna get random covers or whatever, you're gonna get a Wolverine cover. Um, so that's the same thing with that Hulk one, having Wolverine on the cover and the Hulk reflected in his claws. It's awesome. The first time I saw anything about that cover was, like you said, an homage. Uh, Rich Woodall did a Ninja Turtle cover where it was Shredder flashing his claws with Casey Jones reflected in them. Um, and I, I, uh, Rich Woodall is a local guy, uh, up here and, uh, when that cover came out, my local shop that I was going to at the time down in Portland, I had him there doing, uh, you know, doing a signing and he was doing, uh, you know, sketches for people and stuff like that. Um, so it was really cool. It was kind of an event, you know, got to meet the guy who did it. Um, he's a real nice guy and a really cool cover. So that cover now kind of has a soft spot to me and it's just, it's a cool cover. Just like I had an idea for a commission that I really wanted to do and I was just had to keep putting it off because I couldn't afford it. I wanted my friend J.K. Woodward to do it. He's a big Turtle fan, and I love his art. Um, and I finally just bit the bullet. I think I had sold some stuff, so I scraped together the money and, and just paid him for it while I had it. Um, but I had him do uh, Rocksteady Breaking Donatello's back, just like the Broken Bat cover. Just like uh, Bane Breaking Batman's back. And, man, he nailed it. And because of that, because I, I got that commissioned and I love the art, that made me seek out the, the broken back cover, which that's not a very expensive cover. It's like an $8 cover. Um, uh, but there's two versions. The newsstand is more, I think, higher because there's a lower print run. So that's the big thing, I think, now in comics because you've got all the big um, variant covers. And they're, you know, they're going back to the 80s and 90s and considering uh, newsstand editions to be variant covers. And you're finding that those print runs are like, maybe five or ten percent of the total run right and they're really jacking up the price like uh i shared with jay on the slack channel i i found both his and one of his and one of mine uh white whales in the wild a couple of weeks ago now the owner knew what he had so i didn't get to acquire it but it's a second print newsstand cover and apparently was that that batman issue yeah, and apparently there's only 12 known in existence, and so this would be the 13th. But again, I ha- there's like, and you know, not to go into details, but there's six versions of this one book, just because you've got this one book. Yeah, you got having- the, the the first print, you got the first print newsstand, second print, second print newsstand, and then there's an error. Yeah, very version. Then there's errors of both the first print newsstand and direct. <laughs> but up until a few years ago, everybody thought the sixth version was a myth, and then they found one, and then there's been 12 more. But it it it's all conspires. So it was a second print newsstand. So most newsstands, which are going to be like Walmart and everything like that, they wouldn't get a second print. Why would they get a second print? They're not there to sell comics. So the ones that got it, and if they don't sell them, they rip the covers off and send them back. Right. Yeah, so you have not only a smaller print to start with, you have a percentage that's going to get destroyed because they don't sell. 
as opposed to uh, the direct market comics that wouldn't get destroyed. They get thrown in a bin or something like that and, and not destroyed. Yep. And on top of that, how many newsstand comics are going to survive the, that process, like just being a newsstand comic without damage? Like they, they're not treated the same way that a, a direct edition is. But 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 again, the, the content within the comic is the same, and the cover's only different by having a barcode versus like the bat symbol or something in it. So that makes it worth more. Yeah, and from from my perspective as a collector, and I obviously like I don't get into the level of collecting that that you do, where you seek out a lot of the things that are going to be a lot more valuable. Like I I don't have the the means to do that. Um, and even if I did, I probably still wouldn't d- dive too deep into that hole. Um, you have other collectors that are like very completist collectors, like Justin E. Hart has you know four of every goddamn thing, um, <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but like you know, looking at value to me, a lot of the value nowadays is manufactured value. They're saying we're going to make this and we're making it to this scarcity, so that way it has a value to it. When we had a bunch of the Valiant guys on our hundredth episode, Dinesh even said that um, one in tens and one in twenties, there there's no real collectible value to them. They're not scarce enough. You have to go beyond that for there to be the collectible value. So the, the one in tens and one in twenties, it's really just you get them because you like them. Um, but I mean, you could ask, uh, Donna Acri, uh, he can't sell one in tens and one in twenties hardly because once people that like the cover have them, nobody cares anymore. The one in fifties are where it gets interesting or even like one in forties, whatever. They're just generally one in fifties is that next step. Um, because there is more scarcity to them and then you get the right thing like Savage or Britannia or something like that. And those can go crazy because there's not going to be as many around because the print runs are a lot lower on the comic to start with. Um, but going back to older stuff, it's those nuances of, you know, the direct versus the newsstand. And then if you have errors, it makes me think of collecting uh, sports cards where there would, they didn't really print cards with an intention of making variants, just like these comics, like that Batman comic. There's not six versions because they intended to create scarcity. There are six versions because uh, they happened to do a second printing, and for some reason it actually got a second printing of the the newsstand version, and they they accidentally have an error on two of them. So it's it's like a really unique kind of scarcity. But if you want to be a completist at that point, like it gets hard to find out those last things. Well, the funny thing about that Batman comic is Dennis and I have decided that the the error, the one with the error, is the most common one out there. They probably printed more of those. But you've got you've got five <laughs> yeah. or six of them with the Indicia error. Yeah, I got more errors than I do the regular version without the error. So I, I think that was that's by far the most common of the the versions of that, the six versions. And, so. and, and for anybody listening that wants to know what the error is, it's just when you look in the the down and in Indicia, it, instead of having the issue number, it has issue zero zero zero. Yeah. Instead of four five that's, seven. Yeah, but that's all the error is. Instead of having issue four five seven, it has issue zero zero zero. Somebody forgot the typesetter forgot to click ahead. Yeah, it's funny you don't see that kind of stuff very much anymore because everything is so much more uh, automated uh, that it's a lot less likely for them to make mistakes on stuff. You do see them sometimes. Like there was that what was it an XO book that had the the guts of a Quantum and Woody book or something like that. I you heard know about that. Well, there, there's a VH1. I think there's Magnus 
62 or 63, I forget. It's it's in the database. Um, you can look it up. But where the first page is an ad. So you open up the cover, and the first page is an ad as, as opposed to the first page of a story. So there's a, 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 a late VH1 error print out there. Um, I want to think there's another one. The other, the other variant you see is price variance. I know there's some VH1 price variance where it's two, where they started experimenting with uh, 250 versus 225 or something like that. Mm-hmm. And I, I've yet to run into any of those. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of a few of those. Uh, when I got deep into building my collection, I wasn't seeking those out. But when I started to realize they existed, I was looking and seeing if I had any of that stuff because you never know sometimes. Uh, like, I think the Magnus that I had that you're talking about, I think I actually had the variant one, or the error one. Um, but it's, I, if, unless I'm remembering wrong, I don't think that had very much value to it. I think it was just as, like, it was an equal value to the properly printed one. Yeah, maybe um, 50 cents more, but it's just, you know, the completest in you when you get, you know, as with mm-hmm. most people that collect things, you find out there's variants, and for some reason you gotta have it. Like, I, there's no logical reason I should want that sixth version of that Batman 457, but now I know where there's one, and I want it. <laughs> and it's like, how bad do I want it? Well, you well, just picked that, uh... up that, the double cover of uh, Ninja Turtles number three. That's something yep. I didn't even know existed. I was talking with uh, the shop I go to now. The owner is a big Ninja Turtle fan, um, and he's actually he's helped me build a lot of my collection of older Ninja Turtle stuff because he'll come across stuff or he'll buy a lot on eBay to get one thing and then he'll sell me the rest of it. Um, but ironically, even though with a lot of stuff he gets, he's pricing it to get the most money he can out of it because he's a business owner. That's what you would do. Uh, I think with the Ninja Turtle stuff, because he is a Ninja Turtle fan, he I think he actually prices it more on the fair side than on the market side for me. So I end up getting pretty good deals getting Ninja Turtle stuff from him. Uh, but I was talking to him about it anyways, and, and like he was saying, he already has a number three, and he said uh, he has no interest in that cover because he already has a number three. Uh, so like for him as a collector, it's not to get every little nook and cranny of everything. It's just to have a representation of each thing, you know? Um, the one thing that he knows he'll never end up getting is a first print of number one because the price level is just so high that there is no way he could rationally get it. You know, it's, it's the kind of thing that even if somehow you did get it, it's worth too much money that you would end up having to sell it because it wouldn't make sense in your life to keep that, you know, to keep something worth that much. Yeah, well, um, I think a TMNT, TMNT number one is like one of the most counterfeited books out there also. So oh, I'm, yeah. I'm all, I'm, I'd be leery of any I would actually even see. Unless mm-hmm. they were like actually slabbed. Because weren't they just photocopied, basically? Or were they actually um, printed? They... Or am I thinking gobbledygook one? What? I think that they were actually printed, um, you know, like they actually had them printed at a printer, but it is a, a highly counterfeited book. Um, and you know, talking to this guy too, like he knows the ins and outs of everything, so he like he knows the things to look for to make sure you don't get a counterfeit book. Um, like one of the things he says he sees all the time is that uh, a listing will say that the it has white pages. If it says it has white pages, that means it was bleached out. It's counterfeit. Uh, because there's no way that a newsprint book from the early 80s would have white pages now, you know? 
No, not so like immediately bagged it and put it in a vacuum and absolutely no light to get to it for 40 years. Yeah. Even yeah, then, it but, probably wouldn't because of the acid content. Yeah, but going back, I don't have that much TMNT and and I've actually thought about, you know, I need to add that to my PC. So um, I saw that number three with the double cover. And I don't have a number three, so that's why I kind of jumped on it because it is kind of unique and I wanted to add it to it. Now, will I go get another regular number three? Meh. Don't know. But but again, Thanks. it's like it's just it's just another error. So how is it any different? Yeah. And you actually you got a great deal on that, too. You got that for just a little bit more than I got uh, the non-error number three myself. But I, I will give give some um, advice on what I'm looking for now. What I've heard is early image, no matter how crappy it is, and I'm a, I'm a big Spawn fan. I love the early Spawn. But uh, any of the early image that's newsstand is supposedly very rare. It's like the 5 to 10%. What's the so like you said. Newsstand from that there, yeah. Be... Yeah, from the nine or from the nineties, especially with the image and spawns getting really collectible now in the the newsstand. Uh, probably some of the Savage Dragon and I don't know about Young Bud, you know, you know, pouches and no feet. <laughs> the, the newsstand really doesn't help that. That and um, but that it is know, it's interesting learning more about that though. Um, the like the newsstand versus direct thing because I had. Never thought about that at all myself. And then with getting into uh, checking out some Uncanny X-Men, uh, you know, there's that one issue that I got the first Gambit that uh, I like. I wouldn't have thought anything about it or noticed it, but it actually was the newsstand version. So you're pointing out that that is a, a bonus in the deal that I got it for. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing I used to avoid. I used to avoid newsstand. I used to avoid newsstand and second prints. And it just amazes me now because I do listen to a few speculative uh, podcasts. And it's like the speculators go for now second prints and third prints. Like like last week, you know, just because we got to satisfy Martin. Batman 20, was it 24, 20, 24? 24, yeah. Yeah, so where, you know, I don't, I don't want to do spoiler alert and all that, but where he proposes. So apparently everybody's now chasing the third print where they put that balloon box. It's a it's a black and white sketch cover of the cover A of Batman 24, but he's got a balloon box that says "Marry Me," and that's what everybody's scrambling for. Huh. Third, and, and I remember when Nightfall came out and all those other like DC or Marvel events, and second prints I avoided like the plague, and now they're double, triple, quadruple the, the you know the supposed value of the first prints because they didn't print as many. They're scarcer and are a variant. And that's that's another reason I don't really get into the collecting as far from a speculative part, because that would just drive me nuts. Because you don't know, you absolutely don't know what's gonna, you know, because what was popular ten years ago now is it's the opposite. But I'm but sure I'm sure a lot of people like you know, uh, you know, were avoided second and third prints. Listen, nobody's ever gonna, you know, nobody's ever gonna want a second and third print. Now I'll look at it. So it just. I mean, I've I had the first and second print of Batman 608, the first uh, Hush. You know, the start of the Hush storyline. Yeah. Uh, and I remember being so disappointed because I could only find the second print, and I eventually got the first print. And now the second print's worth more. And that's the book I got slabbed. I got the second print slabbed because it's four to five times the first print. Right. And at the time, disappointed in it. So I guess it comes down to why are you collecting? I mean, are you collecting because you like to read it? 
you collecting because you want to do the run? You're, you know, you're, you know, that's just your compulsion. Uh, are you are you trying to flip it, and make money? My thing is, I I chase stuff and and you know I collect stuff because no intention of flipping it, but you right. do get that satis- you get to that satisfaction of finding a valuable book and getting a good deal on it. Oh and, yeah, well, it's like you know I'm glad I've got that uh, Detective Eight Eighty. You know, the other one I've got that's I've been seeing is the Batman Number One of the New Fifty Twos, Snyder's first. Mm-hmm. I've been seeing that listed for 100, 150 lately. Yeah, yeah that's but why? <laughs> but why? I, I, I mean, it had a big pit run, didn't it? Yeah, it did, but it's... I don't know. I mean, it's not like a Batman 1 from 1930, or 41, or 42, whenever that was. Well, and, that's, and that's the reason. I, I keep I see those, and I think, man, I want to sell that, because it can't stay that high. Because it's real, like I say, it doesn't... Yeah, it's the first of that... Uh, or, or is it because you know Batman got up to what eight? What? No, I didn't get up to the detective numbers, but it got up to what the five six hundreds. No, so it's like the it's, first. It's Batman the first, got into the seven hundreds, I think. Yeah, maybe it. Yeah, I can't remember. Maybe it's because it's the first Batman number one since the nineteen forties, and then you get into that whole discussion of number one issues. Right. Which I guess what some people are having issues with that. You know, I, 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 I think what. Everybody's lamenting the fact that, you know, Valiant, you know, to kind of turn it back to that, is, you know, they end some series and they'll start it back up again just so they can get the number ones. Um, I don't know if I quite, I don't know if I quite see it that way. I don't buy stuff because it's the number one issue. I, you know, I buy stuff because, because I like it. I don't, it doesn't seem reliable that, you know, I don't go to the, the, my comic shop and it's like, oh God, look at all these number ones. I got to get every one of them. I mean, I pass on, Nine out of ten of the image books, I'll look at previews and decide what I want to buy based on the story and everything. But just because there's a number one, I don't want to buy it. So I don't. I yeah, just. But you look I don't know the, if I fall for that. I don't think so. But you look at the sales, though the sales figures, and you see, especially on the smaller publishers like Valiant and some others, they put out a number one. It their their number one issue for that is high, and then it, you see the second issue and it just drops by forty percent. Now, is that because a bunch of people read it and said, nah, I don't like this, this is not for me? Or is it because, you know, a lot of people are buying that, you know, speculating on that. Oh, it's a number one, i got to get it, because, I don't know, I think there's still a lot of people out there with that mindset. Whether it's well, val- I mean, valid or not. Is it because they're really buying the number ones because they think it's going to go up in value? I don't know. And they're going to put their kids through college, as, you know, the, the infamous Superman 75 <laughs> was supposed to do? Well, Which see, I have, I think I have five copies of. Yeah, anybody, still who's, back. anybody who thinks that they're going to put their kids through college on comic book speculation, <laughs> unless you can stumble across an action comic from a one or something. You're at a yard sale, and uh, or not even a yard sale, you're in an estate sale, and they... And the family's trying to sell it as opposed to trying to get a uh, auction company that knows what they're doing. And you kind of, oh, yeah, we got these comics here, and they're just paper. And you kind of go through them, and it's like, oh, there's some stuff from the 40s. Yep. Doesn't no. happen now. Every, no. I think, no, no. I think too many people have seen the news where um, comics are worth they, – they know they're a collectible, and they know that there could be some worth in there. Just like comics, coins, stamps, um Figure, I mean, any anything collectible, you know, everybody, if they think it's from, well, actually, I mean, even if they think it's from the 90s, they think it's worth something. But uh, you get back from 
you know, mid 20th, the, the, you know, the 70s or so, when there, when it was harder to mass produce stuff and it was harder to keep stuff and people just threw stuff away. You don't have hoarders and everything. You know, some of that stuff is valuable, but, ah, oh, man, just yeah. you know, the late 80s or the 90s, everything's just mass produced. Comics and cards. I loved getting baseball and, and basketball and football cards. But the 90s just ruined that like it just ruined comic books. Well, they've, the, the, com, the, in fact, the card, playing, the sports card industry collapsed before. And then all those people that were speculating in the cards came over to comics books. And that's part of what drove that crash, you know, because, you know, all of a sudden there's all these people speculating and then they drove, uh, publishers drove up the print runs. Then the speculators jumped out and left them high and dry, and there's just a lot of stuff to it. But I don't know. I, as far as the number ones, I think there's still some of that mentality out there. I'll admit, I bought an extra copy of Batman number one Rebirth, just because of the value of the new 52 number one is high. And I bought one variant of Batman Rebirth number one because I like the cover. And I, uh, it was Dynamic Forces exclusive. Uh, Ooh, so certificate. Yep. Certificate of Authenticity. I got the Certificate of Authenticity. It's Jay Lee did the cover, and I paid 20 bucks for it, so maybe it'll be worth something. Or maybe it won't one of these days. So I don't know. But I think you hit the nail on the head there, too. You bought it because you liked it. Yeah. Not, and that's not what because you, you that's were what trying you to make money. Do. Absolutely. you got to yeah. buy what you, you got to buy what you like. If you don't like it, it's not worth the money. It's like, you know, the collection that I have been was working on that you helped me with immensely, Dennis, was... I was getting all of the Batman-related books that where uh, Norm Brayfogle was the artist. Either he did the cover, interiors, or both. Just because he is my favorite artist on Batman, and I just wanted all his stuff for his, you know. And that was a way of also trying to be somewhat of a semi-completist because I can't really afford to be the completest in wholesale. So I was like, okay, well, if I get everything that Brayfogle did, now I've got this sort of Collection and yeah, it skips numbers and it, it's not a, you know a contiguous run or anything, but it's it's what I wanted and I you know I'm satisfied with it. So. Yeah, I mean that you gotta you gotta collect what you think you can accomplish. Like uh, Batman's tough. I know Martin's trying to do that, but you know, oh, uh, I don't know how he's gonna get a Batman one. Uh, yeah. yeah Martin's approach to that is, is the same approach as a lot of the guys who are trying to collect these difficult ones. Uh, you don't expect to just go out and get it all. So what you do is you, you start somewhere, build your collection, you naturally get back to a certain number, and then you keep your eyes open for something before that number. You just slowly inch your way backwards. And at some point, there's going to be a point where it may not be realistic to keep going, but... You know, it, it keeps it a, a living collection if you know, like, okay, this is what I'm working on, and you just keep your eyes open for an opportunity. I, I know, you know, Martin, Martin, talking to Martin, Chris Campbell, uh, God, there's probably a couple other guys in there that when they talk about it, it's like their collection, they tag their collection by, I'm at this number, you know, I, I'm back to number 144, or, you know, whatever the hell. Um, it, that's kind of how you do it. So it's still a living collection. I know, like for me being a collector, my personality, if I'm not trying to collect something, I can't really keep it. I can't have a partial collection of something and just like I don't I don't want to buy any more ever, but I'm gonna keep this pile of shit, you know? It's like no, I gotta get rid of it at this point. 
Um, so that's why, like, you have to keep wanting to. Like, I know I'm never going to get a Ninja Turtles number one. Uh, the earliest one I have is number three. I have plenty of other gaps and stuff, too. So it's like I have what I'm targeting at. But, you know, once I get down to where I'm I'm that close, it's like it, that'll be the last thing on my radar. So it'll always be like uh, an active collection for me. Um, same so thing some with of the, the some of the extra yeah. prints are, are like the fifth print or the fourth print are actually affordable for a team. And that's team. true. That's what I'll end up doing is with number one. I'll get when I get down to where like all I have left is number one. I'll, I'll get one of the reprints of it uh, just to have a number one. Because some of them um, are pretty expensive also. <laughs> yeah, they do get pretty expensive. I saw a third printing of a number one, but that's like the most boring one. It's just like is a straight up reprint with nothing different about it, really. Um, and I was able to message, uh, you know, the guy who owns the shop I go to now and get his advice on it. And basically the price was like at best fair. So it's like, I'm not going to jump and spend money. I don't have to spend on something that's just the going great, you know, but, uh, yeah, you know, working back on, uh, uncanny, it's like, you've been a, a great help with that, like kind of figuring out what's, we know what ones are worth what kind of. We well, have to you know talk what? about how we're going to force Jay to read X-Men. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, the the thing is, it's like, well, didn't when Harbinger come out, it was compared to, if if you like X-Men, you'll like this. This is what X-Men used to be about. And it's like, well, what is that? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I read the right one, but I've tried to read X-Men a couple of different times and just did not get into it. Uh, uh, you got to read from, like, I tell you, it's like, issue 90, start with Giant Size and 94 and go to about 281. That's the 17 years of Claremont. Okay. Yeah, so just read 17 years of comics, Jay. You'll be all set. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but how, uh, often does, how often does one person write the same book for 17 years? That's what's uh, that's so crazy. crazy. I, that's know, what I figured pro- out what's so great about that run. You know, they haven't done that probably since Golden Age, you know, early Silver Age maybe. Somebody... Yeah, I mean, the best you get now is maybe like five years with somebody. Because, you know, with my mentality with Uncanny, kind of like you were saying, Jay, with uh, with Batman and Brayfogle, you're not going after Brayfogle because there's key books that are super valuable in there. You're going after it because you really like Brayfogle. And anything that is pricier in that, that set of books is probably more of a, damn it, like, why does that have to be so valuable? Because you just want to get the set of books. No. And that's, that's kind of how I feel about the Uncanny books, where it's like... I mean, like, I, I got the first Gambit. That's a, not a super expensive book, but it's a pricier book. So, you know, part of it with with filling that number is like, ah, uh, you know, that might be kind of out of reach for me right now. When I get it, yeah. it's cool, but it's not like I want it just because it's an expensive book. I want it because it's one of those books that, that Claremont did, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's probably from... 150 to see. I, I mean, I got the natural break off of Uncanny about 281. 281's when Claremont left and went to do the second X Men series. So it's except for from probably 110 up. That's probably the most expensive book. 266. Mm-hmm. Now you've got you've got the you know 94 to 110 is just the just the, the for me, the holy grail of the, the the uncanny stuff, especially the Claremont, because you got ninety four yeah. with, with the new team, and then you got um, you know, the first Phoenix, 
and he's setting up all the seeds for all the stuff that I mean, and it sets up everything that all the movies have been based on. And and that's yeah. you know, that's when he came in. And I was reading a great article on Claremont where he was he was a writer and he was going to try to write before getting into comics. So X Men was failing, and so they gave it to him, and he got into the characters and was like, "What's their motivation? You know, what's 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 their character? You know, what's their history?" And that's how he did to write it, and that's why the the run is just so great. And you know, Uncanny is what I collect, and so from you know, I've got every Uncanny back to '94, except for maybe three issues that are you know, I don't think I have '97, '98, '109, and '111. And then from I'm thinking the mid '60s to '93 are all reprints, and for some reason the Everybody wants to overprice them. I mean, I have a few of them. And then you've got the earlier earlier ones there were the first run from the 60s from the Silver Age. And I think my earliest one is I got issue 8, and I got a bunch in the teens with the Sentinels and such. Uh, but, you know, they, you know, that's, you know, other than Valiant, I mean, that's my big thing I go out and I look for. Uh, and, you know, I can't tell you why. I just really enjoy them. And, you know, yeah, you know, things resonate with different people in different ways. And as far as, uh, you know, the, the big two characters in comics, X-Men has always been kind of that one for me. I started reading Batman and I like Batman. Um, you know, I like reading Batman quite a bit. Uh, I like, I'm not reading what's going on right now, but like that was a, when I really dove into comics this last time for good. Uh, I just read a shitload of Batman to start with, you know, trades, collections of stuff. Nightfall was one of the first things that I read um, after reading a few other trades. And uh, but X-Men, it's like I just I, I grew up in the 90s. I grew up with the X-Men cartoon on TV. I grew up with my cousin buying X-Men comic books, even though I hated comic books then because they were terrible. Um and but just the characters like there there's a lot of diversity in the characters a lot of different things going on um they've always appealed to me a lot more than other stuff you know it's like spider-man just as an an icon is interesting but you get into spider-man and i get kind of bored with the character quicker than i do with other characters um you know captain america never really appealed to me the avengers never really appealed to me so it's it's always been an x-men for me and dc beyond batman just like nobody has had any huge appeal to me from DC character wise. Uh, so it's been really cool getting back, like getting back into reading the old stuff that was the best stuff. Um, and once you get used to it, it's, it's not so hard to read. Um, well, that's the thing in the seventies and the eighties and maybe into a little into the nineties, like comics were quite a bit more verbose than they are now. Yep. But they had the very much. It takes a while to get used to it, but uh, but it's it's worth it. Yeah, they're not a five minute read, so you know there's a pro and a con to that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I, I've I've actually found that I've gotten used to the you know modern comics where a lot of the stories told in the art, and it's a you know it's a pretty quick read, and you can go you know you can spend twenty minutes, you can go through the book like twice. You know, you go back and read some of the, some of those books from the seventies and the early eighties. It's a good half hour read. Yeah, yeah, a lot more worth it when you think about what you spend for comics nowadays, too. <laughs> yeah, back uh, back when they were, yeah back when they were a quarter or fifty cents, you got more words, and now they're like four bucks, five bucks, and 
You can fly through them in like 10 minutes. Yeah, but they're so glossy. It makes it easier to fly through them when they're all slick like that, you know? <laughs> oh, I don't know. And, and, and I, I need to try, but I haven't tried to. Who is it? The company that's coming out with the with the comics on the newsprint now. Alterna. Alterna's Alterna. one. Uh, Fanagraphics is doing some with their all time comic line, but it's, Alterna's the big one that's right now. Yeah, because they they're they're publishing them cheap to them, I and they're like a, a buck to a buck fifty an issue. Um, and I read the the first batch of four comics that came out from them, and they were all fine reads. Like none of them blew me away. Um. I wasn't looking to expand my lineup of what I'm subscribing to, so I didn't keep going with them. Um, but if I was, you know, loose with my my pull list, I would have had no problem. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, they're all fun reads and reading on newsprint, and plus the price point. It's like if they were four bucks an issue, no way in hell would I be speaking well, well yeah. of them. But I'm the same way. I, you know, I've I've read some. They were no, entertaining. I didn't have come across any of them I thought were outstanding, but you know I'm gonna continue buying for a couple reasons. I'm kind of nostalgic for newsprint comics because you know as a kid that's what I have. And do they I, smell like the? Do they yeah, smell they like do. the old news? Yep, yep. They oh. smell like them. And I'm I'll, I'll continue to buy them because I'll support anybody who's doing anything to try to make affordable comics available. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, they did. They didn't. They, have that, to that's do that. why I jumped in. They did not have to do that. They did not have to put them in at, at a buck fifty cover price. They could have gone higher, but, but they didn't. And I'm I applaud that what they're doing. You know, it was also a different skill set for the colorist was, was newsprint because I re, I remember reading something like Barry Windsor Smith. He refuses to sign. Like one of his big things was Marvel Comics present Weapon X when he did the Origin of Wolverine. And he refuses, I don't even know if he goes to shows anymore, but at, at one point he refused to sign the reprints because they put them on glossy, the glossy paper, the new paper. But wow. they still use, they still use the coloring schema from it. And it was a, to, the colors were totally wrong because he colored it based on newsprint, like soaking it up and how it did the colors. And it was drastically different on the glossy and he refused to because it wasn't the way he intended the art to be. Hmm. So there's just a totally different way of doing it for newsprint. Yeah, I mean there is. I mean, of course you go back to you know, the technology. The early days, it was it was four colors, you know, the three primary colors and black, and that's you had to combine those, and that's all you had. So uh, you know, I hear a lot of people comp- talk about, well, you know, the quality of comics back, you know, in the Silver Age wasn't as good. Well, no, it wasn't, but they didn't have the technology. You cannot. <laughs> it's not fair to judge those comics by today's standards. Well, yeah, yeah, you have to understand what they were trying to do. Like, I was taking, and I recommend this, there's an online class, I think it was Coursera, for the history of comics. And they're talking about, so everybody wonders, it's like, why does Superman and, like, Batman and them have their underwear on the outside? And this is back in the day with the four colors. If you had, like, a one-color suit, there wasn't enough, you know, hue or changes in it to be able to tell what it was doing, so they had to put a third color like the underwear so you could tell what their legs were doing. Right. So you could, so you could tell, so that was why everything was set up like that. And again, it also had to do with color schemes. I mean, they you, you think the comics from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s are primitive and all that, but they put a lot of thought in them. So like, um, 
heroes were always colored primary. So they were like blue, uh, yellow, uh, red. And then villains were always the color of like orange and green and, uh, and purple. So if you go back and you look at like Golden Age and Silver Age heroes versus villains, they all had the same color schemes because, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was based on, you know, color theory about, you know, bright colors, you know, the right. kind of mood that did versus these others. And you'll see it across both Marvel and DC. Like, similar villains always were dressed the same colors, and heroes were always the same colors. And it wasn't because they were trying to copy each other. It was the whole um, psychology of, of color scheme. Right. Yeah, and, and, like, and yeah, another thing, like, you talk about the color, like Batman. Batman's early, from the earliest days, up, you know, he his cape and gloves were blue, not black. And the reason was because you could not do black with any, it was just flat. You couldn't give it. You couldn't do black and show any, uh, you know, depth or dimension to it. So, like, well, you can't can't put him with a black cape. So they did blue. And, uh, and I remember the I remember the issue where they changed that. It's a I can't remember the issue number, but it's a Batman cover which is solid black embossed. You know, one of the gimmicks from the '90s. And he's like, you know, he's he's all in black, and that's when he switched over to black totally. Right. Because you're right. Because then they could do. A detail with a with a black cape and everything, and got rid of the the yellow uh, bat symbol, which originally was that color, but because it was supposed to, that's where he had his bulletproof armor in a small right. spot, and so it would, you know, he he provided a target that would draw the you know criminals to shoot him there because that and that's the only place he put his armor. Right. Oh, I into Batman trivia here now. That's, good. that's fine with me. I'll talk about that. Well, I don't now. know. We're doing a kind of a comics history. We've kind of gotten that's true. off the Valiant thing, but from from what I've you know what I've heard, you know, like VCP is supposed to be whatever the hell you want to talk about. Yeah, exactly. So all this talk about art. Uh, one of the things that I love with looking at different eras of art is artists are challenged just like you guys were just saying by the limitations of the technology so you know you when you only have three colors and black to work with you have to make very different decisions so looking at the art from those eras you have to like have that understanding and judge it differently um one of my critiques with 90s comics, uh, not all 90s comics, but is particularly a certain era, and I think it was kind of like 95, 96 when it really happened, um, when the technology jumped forward and they were able to do a lot more, they didn't know what to do with it. And art, a lot of art looked really bad because suddenly it was really easy to do things, and they hadn't gotten to where they were pushing the boundaries of what they had to work with yet. So what do you guys think about that? From what I remember, yeah, I think you're right. Um, and I, I, you know, I can get off on a, a lot of tangents about uh, artwork, but I, some of the things that they're doing today, to me, some of it looks like, um, I don't know, they're trying to be overly clever on some things, like especially with the way they do panels. You know, they some panels will be the regular on like a grid, you know, square panels. Then they do these that are kind of odd shaped, and uh, I don't know. Sometimes I think the artists seem to be trying to be overly clever. Uh, 
Yeah, there needs to be a point to it. Right. And I think sometimes they don't have a point. And you look at some what are considered some of the great comics, like uh, Watchmen, you know, considered to be this watershed, but one of the great comics ever. And you look at the artwork, and it's on this nine-panel grid, pretty much all the way through the book. You know, every page is the same way. And it, there's nothing really, you know, in avant-garde or fancy way they do it, but it worked. It works for that book. And yeah, I'm but, not saying but, that this should ever be that way. He did some stuff to it. I can't remember. Isn't it, there's one issue where the the second half of the book mirrors the patterns in the nine panel grid in the first half of the book. It's the it's whatever issue when um Moloch or Molokai gets gets murdered or whatever. Yeah, and cool. and Rorschach is coming to investigate and 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 he mirrors the so the last page mirrors the first page and the second page mirrors the third page and in the in how it magnifies in and comes out and it's different it's different images in the panels but once you realize it and you start looking at it you realize what he's doing so it was Dave Gibbons right I think he was the artist for Watchmen. Yeah. I think every, every issue he tried, they were doing something. And a lot of it's subtle, and a lot of it you can't pick up on, but but I, I remember a lot from the early, uh, like VH1 Shadow Man was the one where I thought they did a lot of experimentation with panels. Yeah, the first few some issues of Shadow Man were some beautiful issues artistically, and the early VH, well, I mean, all the VH1 stuff, but, uh, the, the quality of the art wasn't really what they were known for. Uh, they had some really talented artists working on it, but the, the art style, you know, the Valiant House art style was not in line with what was going on with comics of the day. Um, you know, they, they were much more about the substance of the story than of the, the flashiness of the art. And, you know, of course, that being the 90s, that's when, Images blowing up, drawing really, you know, muscular people with no feet, lots of pouches. Uh. <laughs> well, you had you had the Jim Lee splash page, which I which I love me a Jim Lee splash page, and a and a, Mc, and a McFarlane close up. But and 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 you know, actually, Spawn Spawn had a lot of interesting uh, ways of using panels in the first few issues. You know, I, I, I'm a, I, you know, I'm a McFarlane fanboy. Everybody says he's a douchebag. Um, he's a, you know, you know, uh, took advantage of his partners and everything like that. But the man can draw. <laughs> <laughs> I will give him that. I love, I love some of the McFarlane stuff. And he did some, and he, he was experimenting in Spider-Man. You could see it, but he, then he really brought it in, into Spawn with how he was using panels and and black space and just, you know tying things together yeah from from my narrow knowledge of that era of image stuff uh spawn definitely seems like the winner where it was just a unique enough uh concept and execution whereas a lot of that 90s uh image stuff it all it just all looks like repeats of the same kind of superhero ripoff stuff um it's like everybody you know once this there was this you know indie revolution in comics Everybody just wanted to do the superhero shit that the big two were doing, but do it without limitations. I mean, that's what it looks like just at a glance to me, not having read comics at that time. I've been digging through uh, my my shop 
bought a big collection of a lot, a lot of stuff from that era. So I'm digging through looking for the uncanny. Anything else very interesting? And man, I'm going through a lot of that uh, image stuff. And it just, it all just looks like, uh, you know, the same thing just shat back out by a different artist, basically. Yep. And, you know, I kind of, I think that's what I liked about Uncanny is in that, that run. And now, the, now the current X-Men are, is kind of falling into the same trap, but it used to, they were a team and they, they, they fought, you know, villains as a team. They knew what each other's strengths were. They knew which were other's weaknesses were. And they complemented each other. And, and I think that, you know, I think that's kind of like, like the VH1 Harbinger was kind of like, it was, it was the team working together and covering each other's weaknesses. And that was, and, you know, to get the VEI, that's kind of what I was expecting from Generation Zero, especially since they were a government trained organization. And, you know, you know, growing up having played D and D, it's like, you know, you you encounter the enemy. Okay, you want your long range uh, individuals to start hitting them and damaging them before they come up. And then you want to put your heavy hitters up front to do the damage. The healers behind them to heal them up. And you know, you're kind of organized in your strike force. Where most comics today, it's just like you just throw everybody together and you just start punching the nearest guy near you, whether or not you're your power or your ability is best, you know, suited for that fight or to help somebody else with their fight. It's just a free for all. And I think that's kind of what's missing from a lot of the comics today and what got started missing in the nineties. And I think that's what was appealing about the X-Men, uh, the VH1 Harbinger. And I think the, actually the VEI Harbinger kind of played on that because, you know, they were strategic. It was more, as some people like to say, real world. And, you know, some of the times it gets kind of away from that. But Yeah, it, it's even stuff as, like, you know, your, your mention of the X-Men. I mean, you get you have stuff that became classic, like the fastball special, you know. Yeah. They, they had ways that they worked together. I mean, they would be able to call moves, basically. And it's really easy to, like, if you're trying to mimic that, to just take it and make some stuff up and it'd be cheesy as all hell. But, you know, the fastball special... It it works because like you could see the dynamic of the team where like it makes sense that they worked stuff like that out. Yeah, um, they, had and the, 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 they had the danger room. They figured all that stuff out, and then you saw it play out. There was it. It seemed more real world from the from the standpoint that they practiced it. And now it's just like, hey, I'm just gonna come up and I'm gonna punch you, or mm-hmm. I'm gonna shoot you with my blast, or I'm gonna telekinesis you, or tele. You know, Whatever power you've got, which has got me kind of excited for secret weapons, because apparently they have worthless powers, which means they have to be creative uses of them. Yeah. And that's what's interesting. When does that come out? Is it July? It's June or July. Yeah, I I read it like a month ago because I got an early preview copy of it. It's really good. Uh, I really enjoyed the first issue but, a lot. But, but is it like I'm thinking? They have to come up with creative uses for these useless powers? Yeah, pretty much. Um, the first issue is kind of starting to, to to build the scene of what's going on. Um, and I obviously don't want to give anything away. Uh, but yeah, you have these people with these really oddball powers that don't seem very useful. Um, so it's easy to look at it from the, the outside and just be like, well, this is just going to be a cheesy, stupid book where ridiculous things happen. 
Um, you know, the, an easy comparison to make fun of it is, uh, in X-Men, when they introduce the character Gold Balls, who can make gold balls appear, uh, and it's just like, that's ridiculous. And I, I, I've heard from people that they like the character over time, like they've developed the character well. I don't know, cause I haven't been reading, uh, X-Men ongoing since then. Um, but it, uh, so, you know, it's like, he, he's not in any current X-Men titles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. That, that was, that was during my getting really turned off by Marvel phase. Once that happened, it was uh, actually an uncanny Avengers issue that I was in the middle of. It. I was like, I don't want to read this anymore. That was the first comic I ever paid four bucks for and just said, nope, not reading this and stopped. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so, you know, secret weapons could have fallen into that kind of a trap where they just have ridiculous powers and bumble around, but that's not really what it is. Um, I think that, you know, what you're thinking is a lot more along the lines of, of what it is. Um, and that, you know, just like I was just saying about the art, you know, when you have limitations, what you can do with art, you have to figure out how to get the most out of those things. I think that's kind of along the lines of what these, uh, Psyops have to do with their powers. They have these less than wonderfully useful powers, but they have to figure out how to get the most out of them because people are after them. Uh, so, you know, they can't just ignore the fact that they have them and, and do nothing. Um, so that, that book's going to be really good. I mean, I've only read the first issue that we got a, an, an early preview of. Um, and I, I can't wait for more of it. That one's going to be really good. <sighs> but yeah, I mean, with, uh, you know, you were just talking about Generation Zero and, you know, we got the, the series from them that I don't think was quite what a lot of us expected. A lot of people really liked it. Um, I enjoyed it for what it was. Uh, it wasn't what I I hoped for, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did too. I just, I just, you know, thought it would be more, um, you know, since they had been brought up under a military doc, you know, discipline and everything, that they would, you know, you'd have these, like the X-Men, you'd have these, you know, they'd have situations figured out, and then everybody knew what they were doing during that situation, so you'd see more of a deployment and calling out, you know, targets or, you know, just whatever you're seeing from a military operation wise. Yeah. Um, and hopefully, I mean, we know we have some strong stuff coming in the future. I don't know. Strong may not be the right word, but, uh, some stuff with a lot of emphasis put on it. Uh, Re- uh Renegade number five coming out. Somebody's dying. A lot of oh, build yeah. up with that. Um, we oh, know that yeah, Avenger Wars that. two is coming. Um, so we got a lot of stuff with a lot of emphasis on it coming up. So hopefully we're going to see some more intense stuff from those. Uh, but what do you guys think? So we're not too far off from, from Renegade number five coming out. Uh, there is a gap between number four and number five because the timing needed to be set up correctly. Uh, so what do you guys think of the buildup for that? I mean, we've, we've seen the buildup to the death of a character in VEI once before with, uh, the death of a renegade arc and harbinger. Um, we've seen it in other comics where they, they tout somebody's going to die. What do you guys think of this? Um, it's, it's all, you know, I'm just kind of waiting for it. I haven't really tried to think about it. I don't, I know a lot of people speculate on things like that. It's not something I ever do much of. I just not something that interests me. Oh yeah. Okay. Who could it be? It might be this person. It's an interesting Sort of intellectual exercise, but it's not one that I spend a lot of time thinking about. And I wonder sometimes if 
you know, they're trying to sometimes maybe overemphasizing this. I'm thinking about because I don't. I know Dennis, you don't. You're not on Twitter, but some of the tweets. Oh, no, no, no. I'm on. I'm on Twitter, but okay. I'm just not really active because I'm an old guy and I haven't quite figured it out yet. Yeah. Well, like Valley puts a lot out on Twitter. I mean, they put a lot of tweets out, and they've put. I've seen this tweet. It's the same tweet that keeps coming out over and over again about. You know, a major character is going to die in Harbinger number five, but who? And and I know that we get new, they get new people all the time following, but it's like sometimes I think you know, they've just put that out. I'm like, how many more times are they going to do this? Are they getting to the point where you know people are getting tired of seeing this, or is it making people more interested? I don't know. Yeah, I mean. You know, they're in the entertainment industry, so it's marketing, marketing, marketing. Well, I mean, I've seen a bit on it. There's, um, a, but there's another tweet that I get that makes no point to me, makes no sense to me whatsoever. And they're sending out a page, a full page of the comic. And you go, they have the page layout, and it's got five, six, seven panels. I don't know what And every panel is blacked out, and it just has the words redacted, redacted across all the panels. There's nothing on the page. I was like, well, what is the point of this? I doesn't make it, it makes no sense to me. Uh, well, the the answer of what the point is is that they're saying, "Look how crazy this is! We can't even show you anything because it would give it away." Um, now, yeah, but you you know, can whether or not that's effective is a whole other question. Yeah, you got, you you got to be able to deliver if you're going to build it up that much. Well, and I'm yeah. not saying they won't. It's just that yeah, it's they're well, really. Well, I mean, it's how close are they going to follow the VH1 version of this? Because this is paralleling um, when uh, I think Superstar died in, in hardcore VH1, which I love that cover. I mean, that's one of my favorite covers from VH1. Is that 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 issue? I think I got like three or four of them just because I. I mean, other than Superstar dying, but it's just the most. I think it's just one of the best covers from that era. Right. Do you remember which issue that is? Uh, I want to think it was early on. It was like five or six. But it's just a simple cover. I mean, it's the hardcore low. It's a brown, like a granite background, and the hardcore symbol is kind of askew. And there's like a single bullet hole with blood coming out of it. Hmm. And it's just, it's it's, it's just a. A nice cover. I'm trying to bring it up on the interwebs. There it is. Nineteen is a uh, number thirteen. Ah, the lucky number thirteen. I mean, it's just a nice, simple cover. Yep, issue thirteen. And you know, and that's what this seems to be mimicking is that issue. But I mean, aren't we getting also an issue of uh, Bloodshot's Day Off? Uh, I mean, everybody's actually saying what this. Um, you know, this death or whatever is mimicking that Eternal Warrior issue, but I think it actually is more mimicking this issue, this Hardcore 13 issue, just to throw back. Yeah, I mean, they're doing the, uh, the, you know, the, the cover that is like the, uh, the manila envelope sort of bagging thing that they did with Hardcore. Um, you mean, yeah, I don't know. I, well, or is it doing like uh, there's an Eternal Warrior? Let me look it up here. That's one that they're doing, isn't it? I think you're right. 
Yeah, where you know when you when you when you pull off the cover, it's got his severed arm there, like issue thirty-five. Yeah, that, that's that's it. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. I was just mixing it up. It's been a while since I've really thought about these details because these details are the kind of things that I kind of in one ear and out the other. You know, it's like I just want to get to the book and get to the the story and see what happens. Kind of like Jay said, uh, you know, all this stuff is just uh, a bunch of blustering in the wind. Um, whereas, you know, Jay and I, I think, kind of have a similar personality and our approach to a lot of things when it comes to comics. And I think with, with both of us, it's like, yeah, I, I don't want to speculate on what's going to happen. I want the story. I want the story to tell me what's going to happen. Yeah, but we're, we're a short attention span uh, society now. Yeah, but so I hate you, society. You gotta, you gotta keep, you gotta, you gotta keep, you know, that attention span because you're gonna be off to that next Facebook post, you're gonna be off to the next tweet, you're gonna be off to that next Snapchat. So I can understand where they gotta keep your your attention on it. Yeah, that's what Valiant has to do for sure because that's what society is. But I I strongly think that uh, social media is a big blight on society it's doing a lot of damage there's a lot of good things that can be used for but man like it's making people lazy with typing people don't have to be able to spell they don't have to be able to use punctuation anymore uh they don't have to have uh any kind of attention span everything is in gratification now uh people share their opinion and other people have to listen to it they feel uh they feel vindicated in their opinion by being able to piss people off online and there's just so much stuff like that. Like it, social media is, it's one of those things that, that I, right now it just is our world. But I think at some, some point when things are different, it's going to be looked back on and be like, man, this, this is, this was damaging to people. This is damaging to society. And, and, nobody knew what to do with it. You know, I mean, kids aren't being raised to be taught, any kind of respect for social media because their parents didn't have it, you know? So it's, it's going to be hopefully this generation uh, that is, you know, raised with social media and realizes like what an asshole it makes everybody when they start having kids, they'll be like, Hey, don't be a fucking asshole on social media. Uh, yeah. It's just going to happen. Yeah, probably not. Cause they'll be bigger assholes, <laughs> but uh <laughs> That's, that's the, I mean, it's just like idiocracy. The world's just going to keep on degrading. But, uh, it, this is the effect it has on things like comics. Comics are something that is not quick instant gratification. It's a month to month. You have to be excited and waiting for the next issue. So it makes it really hard when, you know, what do you do to keep people's attention? Like, you have to advertise the issue two months ahead of time. So you have to give them enough information to get them there. So how easy is it to surprise people? How easy is it to do shocking things? You have to do crap like this to keep people talking about it and I mean, talking about it so that way they don't I mean, forget that the damn thing is coming out. I mean, you got to let people know like six, seven months now, apparently. Well, I just meant previews. Pre- in previews, is two, you're soliciting two months ahead of time. Well, so right. the, that's, that's, true, that's, but that's the... But you hear about it like six months ahead of time. Before. Oh, yeah, definitely. As far as advertising, yeah. So on the advertising side with big things, they're advertising it way ahead of time. What I, my point with previews is that is the, the narrowest window you can give on something is two months. Um, so it just makes it so hard to actually be surprising with anything. Um, yeah, you know, I, mean, I, 
I mean, that's what made, you know, we were talking about earlier about, you know, some books from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, some of it you didn't realize there was a big something, you know, incident or something change happening to a character until you actually picked up the book and read it. Now, yeah. And now, now it's like you're, you know, something big is going to happen three or four months. But I remember back in the day, it's like getting my issue off the, the shelf and reading it. It's like, holy shit, I didn't know this was going to happen. Crap. Yeah. You had no So nowadays, nothing. we know so much so far ahead of time that now we can sit here and say, well, it better be good or they're going to let me down. Whereas if there wasn't that kind of buildup, when you get to that issue, it wouldn't, you wouldn't be expecting it at all. So you would run into that and be like, oh my God. You know, I'd actually, I actually missed that. I want to. Oh yeah. I want to pick something off. You know, hey, you know, you thinking it's just going to be, hey, you're continuing your story, and all of a sudden they just do a ninety degree kill somebody, or something comes in, and you weren't, you didn't know about it, you didn't know you needed to get like five copies of it, and it was this big event or anything. It just happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's like that with everything too. Like I think wrestling is such a, an easy example to illustrate like how storytelling works and it relates a lot to comics and the lack of the ability to surprise i think is really prevalent in that too um you know back in the i don't know around 2000 it was when i was uh getting to the age where i, I stopped watching wrestling um you had wwf and wcw really warring with each other and scott hall and kevin nash jumped ship to wcw and the way they did it, nobody knew what was really going on. They thought these were WWF guys that were legitimately going invading WCW. And it was amazing. It was an amazing concept. You couldn't do that nowadays because the Internet ruins everything. It's the same thing with, with comics. Is you, know, you used to be able to have those kind of big surprises because you didn't have to telegraph everything. You didn't have to tell people, you know, tune in next week to see who's coming over from WWF. They tuned in because they didn't know what was going to happen. It's just not that way nowadays anymore, and it's it's just too bad. Too bad. And it's too bad that we're going to have to wrap this up because it is getting late here on the East Coast. Yeah, we've been, we've been doing this an hour and a half already anyway. So it's getting yeah. Late. Yeah, I guess we have rambled on all over the place, haven't we? <laughs> okay. That's fine. Uh, yeah, we, we can keep going much longer, too. Um so uh, in wrapping this up, we're, we're going to say a couple things that uh, I don't think got mentioned in, in what will be kept from the, the front end of our ramblings. Uh, but Dennis has been kind enough to offer some surprises uh, for giveaways and a great idea for the surprises for the giveaways that uh, Martin will work out the details of it because he's, uh, he's that guy. He's the, the tech guy for us. Um, but we've done a few live episodes of the podcast before. Uh, so we'll talk to Martin and see what we can work out, but we'll in the future plan a live episode and uh, to be entered to win uh, a copy of VH1 XO Man of War number one supplied by uh, our good friend Dennis here. You will need to listen live to that episode and uh, comment on the chat. That's all you got to do. So you have to be there when we're recording, listen to it, you know, interact, just a comment. That's all you need to do to be in- entered into it. And depending on how this goes, uh, Dennis may be willing to uh, to provide more sharing opportunities in the future. So we'll have more details with that when we can work it out some with Martin. Uh, he will probably hear about this idea when he listens to this episode of the podcast, which I think is the best way to communicate with him. Um, but yeah, so uh, thanks for joining us, uh, Dennis and Jay. Um, 
filling in for Martin this week. He's busy with work. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Who's Paul. Jay is on Twitter at JayForgets. Dennis is on Twitter, uh, but he won't respond to you if you tweet him there at Uttinger, U-T-E-N-G-R. Um, you can talk to any of us on the Valiant Central uh, Facebook group. We're all in there. Um, and if you're on the Slack channel, you obviously already talk to us a lot. So you can find us there. Uh, tweet the show at Valiant underscore Central. Um, find uh, this podcast, another great podcast on the Nerdy Legion podcast network, nerdylegion.com. That pretty much sums it all up. Do you guys have any last things to say? Well, Jay, uh, do we kind of want to mention the best of the rest? Yeah, we can do that. Let's just keep everybody, as far as making the marketing, I guess, on this. There will be a new podcast coming to Nerdy Legion Network pretty soon. It'll be hosted by Dennis and myself. It's called Best of the Rest, and we're focusing on indie comics, alternative or independent comics. So, And somebody will die. It may be one of the hosts on air or something like that, but uh, anyway, it's something we've been working at for a while, so it should be coming up pretty soon. Yeah, I'm excited about that. I know a lot of us are, and uh, we will definitely keep on bumping that uh, as it comes out on the Valiant Central podcast, the flagship podcast on the Nerdy Legion podcast network, no matter how much that goddamn Nerdy Legion podcast thinks it is just because it stole the name. Valiant Central is where it's at. <laughs> uh, until next time, fellas, I'll be talking to you both soon on Comics in Black and White, which you can tweet at CBW Podcast. Uh, listen to us. Find us on the Nerdy Legion website. Um, and until then, you guys have a great night. Uh, enjoy not having the thunderstorms that I am having threatening my power. And good night. All right. Good night.